typically when we think about revivals, this will be our last message on revival. We're going to start a new series next week. Typically when we think about revivals and when we read about the revivals of the past, our minds and our focus goes to the large numbers of people who are converted. Um, in fact, often what we've done is we've used revival services as evangelistic tools to see people saved. Now the problem with this is revival isn't for the lost. Revival is for the saved. It is for the people of God. God revives His people so they will rejoice in Him. And what we see is that evangelism, that the people being saved, that is the result of people being revived. Once we are rejoicing in our God, the natural result is we would then try to help other people know the God that has brought such joy into our lives. That we would then try to talk to people and help them experience the good things of God as we have experienced it. Evangelism is a byproduct of genuine revival. And what happens is revival changes us in our hearts and in our lives. And it changes us to such an extent that this change is seen in how we deal with other people, how we interact with people around us that we encounter on a day-to-day basis. We're going to look today at a passage that kind of shows us how this change will be lived out. Um, open your Bible to 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 19 and 20. should be page 906 in a pew Bible. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand on the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read from verses 19 and 20, but we're actually going to look at quite a bit of chapter 2 this morning. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 19. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at His coming? For ye are our glory and joy. title of the message this morning is The Result of Revival. Let's pray. Father, we love you today. We praise you for your grace and your goodness. For all that you've given and done. Lord, we have studied these last few weeks on revival because we desire revival in our lives. Lord, we don't want a revival that just stays in here. We don't want just a revival that makes us sort of feel good. We want a revival, Lord, that spreads from our church to our community. A revival that legitimately changes who we are and how we are and what we do in our lives. We live in the midst of a dark and a dying world. The lostness of the world is evident. The lostness of our community is evident. I mean, we don't have to go to far off places to see deep and abiding lostness. God, we can just go to Walmart, go to the grocery store, go out to eat. Lord, the, the lostness isn't going to change because we sit in here and curse at the darkness. The lostness isn't going to change because we elect the right leaders. Things only change as you change things. Your method, your plan to change communities is for disciples to make disciples. You have sent us into the world as Jesus was sent. We are meant to give our lives to make disciples of all nations. 
Father, my prayer, my heart, as these last few weeks on revival haven't been just encouraging or challenging messages. Truly, we would experience revival and we would rejoice in you. We would draw near to you. And our drawing near to you would give us the heart for the loss that you want us to have. Fill me this morning with your Holy Spirit and give me clarity of thought, clarity of speech. Have your way in every heart, every life, every person that's here today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Before Paul came to Christ, he was a persecutor of the church of Christ. He didn't just kind of persecute the church. He was very zealous in his persecution of the church. He he went all over the world trying to find believers in Christ. Brought them to Jerusalem so that they would stand and have to give an account. Brought them to a place where they would either have to deny Christ, be imprisoned, or be put to death for their continued faith in Christ. Paul in his own testimony said he brought men and women, which was an unusual thing to bring women In that day, not only did Paul really persecute hardly in that way, according to his own testimony, Paul enjoyed the pain he brought to those who followed Christ. He made their lives hard. He made their lives painful. He, in fact, was there when some were killed and he enjoyed the suffering he inflicted on followers of Christ. But then he met Jesus and everything changed. He went from being a persecutor of the church of Jesus Christ to the greatest missionary the church of Jesus Christ has ever known. And what happened in Paul, that's the sort of change revival brings into our lives. I mean, if we are genuinely revived by the Spirit of God, there will be a compulsion in us to tell others about Jesus, to try to reach others for Christ. So our key truth today is revival from Christ changes us into missionaries for Christ. Now the idea of living as a missionary probably or possibly sounds strange. Typically we think of missionaries as those who go off to far away countries. Living as a missionary should not be strange. A missionary is simply one who lives in a community And they live on mission. They live on the mission Jesus gave of making disciples of all nations. Some do this in faraway places like Uruguay or Bulgaria. Others do it in places like Guyana, Hooker, Goodwill, Texoma. But all disciples of Jesus are meant to be missionaries. And the revival that Jesus sends, the revival... The Holy Spirit brings, changes us, and makes us into missionaries. The Holy Spirit revives us in here, and then He sends us out there with the good news of great joy about Jesus. And in 1 Thessalonians 2, there are three ways revival changes us into missionaries for Jesus. First, revival changes our perspective. Verse 19 and 20 is a part of my Bible reading recently and wasn't really a part of the series when I planned it, but Paul's wording is so good I couldn't get away from it. What is our hope 
or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For, for ye are our glory and our joy. Now the context is Paul wanting to go to see them but being unable to. Satan had hindered him. Other things had happened. He had not been able to make it back to Thessalonica to visit the people. And he gives the reason he desires to go see them so greatly is that they are his hope. They are his glory. They are his crown of rejoicing. They are his joy in the presence of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, he's talking about the return of Jesus, the presence of Christ at his coming. Paul is saying when Jesus returns, he will rejoice. When Jesus returns, He will find glory. When Jesus returns, He will have joy. And it will be because of them. It will be because of the people He led to Christ and that He discipled in Christ and He helped be faithful to Christ that on the day of Christ they are still there, that they are going to heaven. Paul's desire is to go to them and encourage them in their faith. To strengthen them so that they will persevere and make it to heaven. He knows that what will matter when Jesus Christ returns. It will be the people that he helped come to know Christ. What will matter when Jesus Christ returns are the people he helped live for Christ. What will matter when Jesus Christ returns are the people he's helped remain faithful And make it to heaven. See what's happened is Paul's had a change in perspective. He's gone from seeing earthly. From an earthly perspective to an eternal perspective. He's began to see now what really matters. What is really important. And it's the people. That he will will help come to know Jesus Christ. He, He calls them his crown of rejoicing. One of my commentaries said the word crown. It referred to the victor's crown. It was worn by an athlete after he had won a struggle in a contest. And here's what it says. The picture is that we are in a contest. A spiritual struggle against Satan for the souls of men. Therefore we must strain and struggle and fight for the souls of men. A crown awaits us. A crown that we will miss unless there are souls for us to present to Jesus. You ever think about being in a struggle against Satan for the souls, the people around you? For your children, your grandchildren, your nephews, your nieces, your co-workers, your next door neighbors? If you were to think that way, would it change how you lived? Would it change what you did in your daily life? For us to live in an eternal perspective... It is both ridiculously hard and critically important. It's ridiculously hard because everything in our culture encourages us to focus only on ourselves. Everything in our culture encourages us to be selfish, to put ourselves first, to do what we want, to think of other things other than what would ultimately and what would truly matter. A focus on, on ourselves is always a focus on earthly, temporary things. But Jesus seeks to change this in our lives. 
Jesus, as He revives us, as His Spirit is at work in us, He wants us to change our perspective to we focus on what really matters, that we focus on what has eternal significance. I mean, just think about it in light of what Paul's saying here. Jesus comes back right now, in the middle of this service, and as the Bible says, we, we rise to meet Him in the air. In that moment, what is going to matter? In that moment, what will be our joy, our crown of rejoicing? Will it be all the cool toys that we had in this life in light of the glorious return of Christ? Will our cars and our games and our computers, will that be like, whoo, that was awesome. If Jesus were to come back right now and we were to see Him in all of His glory, would it matter how big our savings account was? Is that what we're going to be like? Yes, I made it. If Jesus comes back right now and we see Him in all of His glory, well, there's TV shows that we watched. Will that be, man, I'm glad I saw that one whole season of this show. I'm glad I, I binged watched these things. Jesus were to come back right now and we were to see Him in all of His glory. Will our social media popularity, will that be how many likes I got? How many follows I had on Instagram? If Jesus were to come back right now and we were to see Him in all of His glory, would our athletic accomplishments, would that be? Look at my trophies. Look at what I want. Jesus came back right now. We saw Him in all of His glory. What are our scholastic accomplishments? Would that be what we pointed to? Look, Jesus, at how much I learned. Jesus came back right now. And we saw Him in all of His glory. What our vocational accomplishments? Look at all the promotions I got and all of the awards I won on my job. As you stand before Jesus, imagine right now you're standing there. What matters to you right now? Isn't it people? Isn't it that your, your kids are there with Jesus? Isn't it that your family members are there with Jesus? Isn't it that your friends are there with Jesus? I mean, because the alternative, if they're not there with Jesus, where are they? They're in hell. So what matters at the moment when Jesus comes back, the only thing that we're going to care about in that moment, it will be people. Those that we led to Jesus. Those that we helped grow in their faith in Jesus. Those that, we, those that we encourage to remain faithful to Jesus. Those that are in heaven, that are going to go to heaven. And we had a part in help getting them there. Pastor David Platt, he said, when the day comes, I'm convinced we will not wish we had given more of ourselves to live the American dream. We will not wish we had made more money, acquired more stuff, lived more comfortably, taken more vacations, watched more television, pursued greater retirement, or been more successful in the eyes of the world. Instead, we will wish... We had given more of ourselves to living for the day when every nation, tribe, 
people and language will bow around the throne and sing praises to the Savior who delights in radical obedience and the God who deserves eternal worship. Living with an eternal perspective is critically important because every disciple of Jesus is meant to play a part in helping other people come to Christ and live for Christ and be ready for Christ on that day. Dear friend, if you have repented of your sins and you have believed in Jesus Christ, you are expected to have a part to play in other people's spiritual journey. You're expected to help make disciples of all nations. And whatever else we think is important will not be important on that day. When we have an earthly perspective, we will focus on everything else. Everything else over winning souls. Over discipling new believers and encouraging other disciples to keep on keeping on. Because everything in this world says, mind your own business. You're too tired for that. You deserve this. Put yourself first. You're what really matters. It is only when we set our mind on things above where Jesus is that we realize people matter. They will not be accidentally won to Christ. They'll not be accidentally discipled to follow Christ. They'll not be accidentally encouraged when they're discouraged. It takes disciples with an eternal perspective who will lay aside their preferences, their fears, their tiredness, and will do what needs to be done to help others. Because that is what every disciple is meant to do. And when Jesus revives us, He makes this change within us. Revival from Jesus changes us to missionaries for Jesus. Secondly, revival changes our attitude. Look at verse 7 and 8. Paul says, but we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherishes her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, We were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls because you were dear to us. Now, I find Paul's description of his ministry in these verses really to be different than what I would imagine. Because in Paul, you find someone with a, a strong theological mind mixed with an unyielding conviction about Christ, gospel, the importance of holy living and sound doctrine. And in my mind, a person like that does not describe themselves as that of a, a mother nursing her child. And yet, that's how Paul describes himself here. That he, he cherishes them as mothers cherish their nursing infants. What does it mean to cherish people in this way? I don't know for sure, but here's what it means to me, what I thought of. To me, it points to the actions a nursing mother takes for their children. It is very accurate 
to call a nursing mother sacrificial. Because they sacrifice time. They sacrifice their life. They adjust their schedules around everything it takes to take care of the need of the child. They take the initiative to do what needs to be done to care for the child. Because ultimately the child can't care for itself. The child needs the mother to know when it's hungry. To change the diaper. To get up in the middle of the night. To do what needs to be done to protect it from things that would damage it and hurt it. Ultimately, the nursing mother has to take great sacrifices to care for her child until the child is old enough to care for itself. And she does this not out of a sense of obligation, but because she cherishes, she loves her child. And it is her love for the child that motivates her to make sacrifices on behalf of her child. So, as far as our attitude, do we cherish people? I mean, this is the picture. Do we cherish people enough to make those kinds of sacrifices for them? Do we cherish people enough to adjust our schedule so that we can minister to them when they can? Do we cherish people enough to make the sacrifices necessary? To talk to them about Jesus. To meet with them when they can meet. To pray with them. To give of ourselves in that way. That's what we're supposed to do. But he goes on and he describes that he he affectionately, he is affectionately desirous of them. And, and the word in the Greek, it's one word in the Greek. And it carries with the idea of having an intense desire or longing. One of my commentaries said this word has been found on a 4th century gravestone. In which a mother and father express love for their deceased child. And those sorrowful mother and father greatly desire their son. So as a parent who has lost a child would desire for that child to come back. It's the kind of desire Paul has for the Thessalonian believers. It pictures him willing to do whatever it takes to be with them, to help them, to strengthen them, to guide them in their relationship with Christ. So why do we do what we do? Why do we share the, the message of the gospel? Because we love people. We love them. We, we love Jesus first and foremost. And we want people to know Him. Can, can you imagine... Imagine when you were dating your spouse. Imagine if they were almost embarrassed to talk about you. Imagine if people had to basically drag out of them that they were dating you or engaged to you or married to you. How would you feel about that? Is it any different when we feel that way about Jesus? Is it any different... For us to be, for people to basically have to drag out of us that we are disciples of Jesus and we want them to know Him too? Shouldn't that be the normal thing for us to talk about the one we love? We love Jesus and so we talk about Jesus. And then we love them. And so we talk to them about Jesus. We know the consequences of sin. We know the wages of sin is death and not physical death, eternal death. That those who reject Jesus will go to hell. 
where they will suffer eternally. And the smoke of their torments will rise forever and ever. And because we love them, we don't want that for them. And because we love them, we introduce them and we do everything we can to introduce them to the only one who can save them from that. Right? Being a good person does not save from hell. Being religious does not save from hell. Being a moral person does not save from hell. Being a good worker does not save from hell. Being a Republican does not save from hell. Being a Democrat does not save from hell. Jesus, and only Jesus, saves from hell. And so we don't encourage people be more moral. We don't encourage them to be religious. We don't encourage them to vote a certain way. We urge Jesus upon them because we love them. And we want them to know the only one who can save them from the eternal consequences of their sin and their unbelief. But love has to be the motivation. The old cliche says people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. I really tend to think that is mostly correct. I tend to think that is why door-to-door evangelism is not overly helpful in our day. Just to walk up to some stranger's door, knock on their door, and talk to them about Jesus. I I don't know how how helpful that is, how much that really leads people to Christ. Maybe I'm just speaking for me. I don't like people just randomly walk up to my house and offer me stuff. Somebody just comes to my house and wants to sell me something, I'm not buying it. I typically choose what local politicians I'm not voting for by the ones who come by my house. If they come by without my invitation and they make me come outside and talk to them, I save what they give me so I can vote against them. I don't like people to come to my house without being invited. People I don't know. Now, you guys can come by. I'm just talking about random people I don't know. If you just show up at somebody's house and they don't know you, they're going to think you're a cult leader. A cult member. They're going to think you're using them. To try to earn your way to heaven. They're going to think that you're trying to force your religion upon them. They're not going to know that you care. They're not going to know that you're there. Because you care about their souls. Now I know that's why you're there. You know that's why you're there. But they won't know that. So we have to. To get to know them. right? That's why Paul says. He was willing not only to give them the gospel, but also our own souls. Because you were dear to us. Paul's example was of kind of doing life with them. He made friends. He spent time with them. He ate with them. He invited them to wherever he was staying. He went to wherever they were staying. He talked to them as he worked on the job. When he was in Thessalonica, he helped build tents. He, he worked with people. He talked with people. He, he spent his life with them. He didn't walk up and say, can I share four spiritual laws with you? Oh, no, okay, well, then I'm going to leave. He gave them opportunity to, to see him. This is how he lives. He, he talks about that in his letter, that you know what kind of life we live. 
He gave them an opportunity to see he really lived what he was professing. He gave them opportunity to maybe ask questions. Why do you believe this? What are you saying about that? Are you really meaning this? He answered those questions without getting angry, without getting mad, without looking for a fight in them. And he devoted the time necessary in order to share the gospel into their lives in a way they would hear, they would care about, and they would listen. Again, if some random person, politician, would come by my door, say, vote for me, I am not going to listen to what they have to say. If Scott comes by and says, I think you ought to vote for this politician, here's one. I'm going to listen to what Scott has to say because Scott's a friend of mine. I know him. I know he cares about me. There's a reason he's done this. People care about how much we care. They don't want to be used by us to get to, for us to get to heaven. They don't want to be used by us for us to get brownie points with Jesus. They don't want us to force their religion, our religion upon them. They don't want to be drawn into a cult. They want to know we care. And that gives an opportunity to share. Think about like the Good Samaritan. I think that's one of the best examples of somebody getting involved in the messiness of life to make a difference. Of course, you know the story. The guy goes down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he gets robbed. He's laying there naked and bleeding. And first a priest goes by and sees him and He passes by on the other side so he doesn't have to deal with it. Then a Levite comes by and he sees it. He doesn't get involved either. He passes by on the other side so he doesn't have to mess with it. Then a Samaritan comes by and he sees him. And he goes to him and he puts oil and bandages on his wounds. He picks him up and puts him on his donkey. He takes him into an inn and he pays and says, keep him here and if here's what I'm paying you and if it costs more, when I come back, I'll, I'll pay for it. You just let him stay there until he gets better. The Samaritan saw the need and he got involved to do what was necessary to meet that need. Right? He, he got involved in the messiness of life. Can you imagine getting involved in someone that's laying there naked and bleeding and all that has to be involved in that in a place where bandits typically rob people? That must have been scary, but he did it. He got physically involved. He got down to where the guy was. He bandaged his wounds. He put him on his donkey. He carried him to a room. He got financially involved. It cost him money. The oil that he used, the bandages, the the hotel room, that cost money. He, He got involved where his time was concerned. How much time does it take to bandage up a person who's been beaten and left for dead? How much time does it take to walk them into town? Put them in a room? Keep up, pay for the room. He, he sacrificed his comfort. I mean, the, the Levite and the priest passed by because probably they thought it was a trap. I mean, it had to be scary. Obviously, at least bandits were in this area. There was evidence of that. He, he sacrificed his prejudices. You know that that Samaritans and Jews had no fellowship with each other. They didn't like each other. Now we've often talked about it from the perspective of Jews. Jews despise Samaritans. 
The reality was it was just it was returned. The Samaritans despised Jews just as badly. He sacrificed all of those things to get involved. As, as Paul said, he, he gave the man his life as well. It's the gospel. If you remember the story, you should know the point of the story. Jesus asked the lawyer that prompted the story, which of these two was, was the neighbor? Right? Because the guy said, what do we do? Jesus said, love God, love your neighbors. And he said, well, who's my neighbor? So Jesus tells this story. So Jesus said, now who was the neighbor? God says, well, the one that showed mercy. Jesus said, go thou and do likewise. That's the point. Go and do what the good Samaritan did. Go to those that others are passing by. Invest your life. Invest your money. Invest your time. Sacrifice your comfort. Sacrifice your prejudice. Do what needs to be done to help them. Lest they die in their sins. This requires a change of attitude in our part. If we want to truly do what God would have us to do in our community, we can't see people as burdens. We can't see people as the enemy. We can't see them as interruptions. We can't see people as a waste of our time. We can't see people in any of the ways we're tempted to see them that are negative. Our culture, our culture does not foster this view of humanity. I've said this before and I'll say it again at times. If you're conservative and you watch Fox News or you read Breitbart, that is conditioning you to hate certain people. And if you're a liberal and you watch CNN or MSNBC or you read whoever it is that writes for them, it is conditioning you to hate certain people. Do not be a disciple of Sean Hannity. Do not be a disciple of Ben Shapiro. Do not be a disciple of MSNBC. Be a disciple of Jesus. And let Him change your attitude about the people in our community. Not the people far off somewhere out there. This is, this is in my notes. And it's a bit of a rabbit trail in a soapbox. But I'm going to say this and move on. Do you know one of the tragedies of the American church? We will send money to missionaries in Mexico. But we will not reach out to the Hispanic people in our own communities. We, we, we send shoeboxes to foreign countries to give to the children there. But when those same children come to our country, we despise them. We ignore them. We say they ought to go back home. God help us for that hypocrisy. God help us for that evil in our hearts. I heard a guy say once, he'd spent his life as a missionary to Muslim-majority countries. He said, it is a shame in the American churches that we will send our young men and women as soldiers to Muslim countries to kill the Muslims. But we will not send our young men and women as missionaries to the Muslim countries to save the Muslims. 
Help us. Be a disciple of Jesus. Let Him change your attitude so that we see people as He saw them. In some ways, this attitude follows the first one. If I'm just looking from an earthly perspective, then I'm going to see people of different ethnicities. I'm going to see people that get on my nerves. I'm going to see people that may be here illegally. I'm going to see people that disagree with me politically. I'm going to see people that just seem to be a waste of my time. But if I see from an eternal perspective, I see that all that matters on that day are people. That's going to change my attitude about them and the way I treat them. This is what Jesus does. When Jesus revives us, He changes our attitude. Revival from Christ changes us into missionaries for Christ. And then revival changes our motives. Verse 11 and 12, Paul says, and you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you. As a father doth his children, that you would walk worthy. Worthy of God who hath called you into his kingdom and glory. Now Paul's words about what he did when he were there, when he was there, they are strong words. He exhorted them. It means he advised them, he admonished them, he encouraged them. There's a sense of urgency to this. He's not exhorting them to try strawberry jello over cherry jello. He's calling them to do something specific and important, and he's calling them to do it quickly. It must be done, and it must be done now. He comforted them. Some translations, I think, say encouraged. But it isn't so much that Paul's words, it, it, the emphasis is on activity. It's not that he encouraged them to feel better about themselves. It's Paul encouraged them to do better in their lives. Warren Wiersbe said, Christian encouragement must not be an anesthesia that puts us to sleep. It must be a stimulant that wakes us up to do better. And then Paul charged them. It's a military command. It was a command that lays on a person charged under an urgent and critical obligation. So it's not so much Paul saying you might think about it. It would be a good idea if. It's Paul saying this is what Jesus said. This is what you must do. But why did Paul do that? They would walk worthy of God who had called them. Into his kingdom. To his glory. He wanted them to walk worthy of the one who had saved them. He wanted them to walk worthy of the name by which they were called. He wanted them to live lives that brought glory and honor to Jesus. If you think about it, Paul exhorted and comforted and charged them because he wanted what was best for them. And what was best for them was they lived for Jesus. It wasn't that they do their own thing and feel happy about it. It wasn't that they have their conscience soothed. It was that they would live for Jesus. That was what was best for them. He understood sin hindered their relationship with Jesus. It leads him to do all that he can in his words to encourage them to get out of sin, to live for Jesus, to bring glory to him in the way that they lived. When we're revived, we will exhort people. We will 
charge people. We will encourage people. We will do what we can to help people along the way. But it does require us, again, it goes back to knowing people, doesn't it? If I don't know you, how can I exhort you in any way? How can I encourage you? I don't know what's going on in your life. I have to be willing to give you my life and you give me your life as well as the gospel so that I can see when you're faltering. I can tell when you're struggling and I can care enough about you to come alongside you. But our motivation for this matters. Our motivation for why we say these things to people, why we go to them matters. And this is where the change comes in. Because an unrevived person, they often exhort, comfort, and charge people, but they do it with the wrong motive. For instance, some people will, will exhort, comfort, and charge people in order to judge or condemn them. Right? They, they want them to know how wrong they are. Now, there's not the, the point of them walking worthy and turning back to Jesus and doing what they ought to. Instead, it is just to bring the hammer down. Just to make sure they know I disapprove of their actions. Just to make them feel utterly and completely condemned by Christ. Make no mistake, that motivation is unworthy of Christ. Another wrong motivation is to soothe a guilty conscience. Another way that we will be tempted to Exhort and comfort and charge people. If we're unrevived, is to soothe their consciences. What happens with this is a person may be feeling off in their service or devotion to Jesus. They may feel convicted by the Holy Spirit. They may have read the Bible and it's pointed out an error in their life. Or someone else may have gone to them and talked to them and showed them something in their life that wasn't right. And they come to us. And what we do at this point as we tell them that they're okay. Oh, you're, you're a wonderful person. You're great. Oh, no. Remember when you were five and prayed that prayer? Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure Jesus just thinks you're the greatest thing ever. Never mind their sin. Never mind how they've pushed back and pushed away. Never mind all the things that are wrong in their life. Never mind that it's the Holy Spirit that's convicting them. We just don't want them to feel bad. Feel better. You're a good person. Gosh darn it, people like you. And that's soothing someone's conscience. It enables them to live as they are living without making any changes. It, it makes them feel better about themselves without turning them back to Christ. And that motivation, it is unworthy of Christ. And another one would be to get the details. Very sadly. Sometimes an, an unrevived person will go to someone to exhort, to comfort, or to charge them. But not because there's a desire to see them walk worthy. I just want to know what's going on in their life. Not so that I can pray specifically, but because I need to know. Someone told me that you're not right, and I, I want to know exactly what's going on. Give me all the details. Tell me all about it. That motivation is unworthy of Christ. The revived person, the revived disciple of Jesus, their motivation to 
going to someone and exhorting and comforting and charging them is to encourage them and help them live for the glory of Jesus. To help them live in the way that God wants them to live. If they are falling away and they have taken a path of sin, the goal is to turn them back to Christ. If they're discouraged, the goal is to help them find encouragement in Christ. If they are waffling in their commitment to Christ, the goal is to help them get back and do what needs to be done. The motivation to help them live for the glory of Christ, it is the only motivation that is worthy of Christ. It's the only motivation that is worthy of Christ. That motivation requires a change in our hearts. And it is the kind of change Jesus makes in us when He revives us. Revival from Jesus turns us into missionaries for Jesus. I want to close this morning in a a different sort of way. I want to close with a responsive reading. I'm going to put some words on the screen. It's an old hymn. And I'll read the words in white and then we'll all read the words in yellow together. Lift up your eyes. Look on the fields. They white to harvest are. God is calling volunteers to serve Him near and far. Lord, lay some soul upon my heart and love that soul through me. And may I bravely do my part to win that soul for thee. And you, dear Christian, God now calls to labor for the lost. Will you your life, your gifts, your all, give Him at any cost. Lord, lay some soul upon my heart and love that soul through me. And may I bravely do my part to win that soul for Thee. I will be true, my Lord, to serve who died to set me free. I'll consecrate my life to Him and ever faithful be. Lord, lay some soul upon my heart and love that soul through me. And may I bravely do my part to win that soul for Thee. I'm just going to close with a time of prayer.